0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 285. Today's big Bible question, why did the Apostle Paul want to die? Well, hello, friends. Happy Wednesday to you tonight at 7 p.m. Pacific. I'd love to invite you to join us for a Bible study discussion called Worship as Warfare. We're going to talk about how worship in song is a tremendous weapon in spiritual warfare that can and will drive the darkness away. If you would like to join us, we will be at VBC Salinas on Facebook. That's VBC Salinas. I'll also be broadcasting on my personal Facebook page, which is Chase Thompson. Uh You can find me there, and I hope you join us. Again, 7 p.m. Pacific. Now, this week's might feature some shorter episodes, as my bride is in Alabama visiting family, and I and the five kids are holding down the fort in California, where there might be a few increased duties and a little bit less time for podcasting, so hang on for that. Today's Bible readings include 1 Kings chapter 10, Psalm 91, Ezekiel 40, and Philippians 1, which is our focus passage. Now, I want to apologize a little bit for the clickbaity title, but I will say that a close reading of Philippians 1 will actually demonstrate that our focus question in the title of today's podcast is true. I just may have dramatized it with a tiny little bit of misdirection. If you read Philippians 1, and you're really paying attention to what you're reading, Paul says a most astounding thing that I honestly would venture to say that more than 99% of Christians would really have a hard time agreeing with. So let's read the passage, and I want to see if you genuinely and truly agree with what Paul is saying. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you all are partakers with me of grace." both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel— Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So the part of the text that we're discussing today is where Paul says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. He's talking about living or dying. He's talking about choosing whether to live or die. And then he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So then he's convinced that he's going to stay and do that. Very interesting. Paul talks about death in the way that almost none of us talk about death. And lest anybody misunderstand what exactly he's saying here in verse 23, I want to reiterate, he's saying that he desires to die so that he can be with Christ. Now, I've talked to a lot of church people, uh, a lot, but I do not believe that 1 in 500 expresses that same sentiment as Paul. Do you genuinely desire to depart? I honestly can't say that I'm rooting to die pretty much every day. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe wholeheartedly in heaven and in Jesus, and I believe wholeheartedly without a doubt that being with Jesus is better than being on this fallen earth. But the idea of leaving my wife and family and friends, eh, it's quite difficult to swallow. I imagine most of you feel the same way. So what makes Paul different? Is he crazy or whatever? I don't think so. So let me say this up front in a very de- delicate way if I can. Some who wrestle with depression, tragedy, or other dark things might find themselves sometimes desiring death in a hopeless sort of wounded way. But I'm pretty sure that's not a- anywhere close to what Paul is expressing here. Yes, life is hard. And I he is in a difficult situation when he writes this letter to the Philippians, but it seems like he is walking in abundant joy and peace from the Lord. So he does not seem to be expressing the idea that life on earth for him is so hard at the moment. And he's just so overwhelmed by tribulation and pain that he just wants to go ahead and get it over with and go to heaven. Instead, He seems to be expressing the rock-solid conviction that he knows that being with Jesus is better and he wants with his whole will to be there, even though he is willing to stay if that's what's the better thing. So getting to our somewhat provocative question, Paul did indeed want to die, but why? I think a big part of the answer is that Paul had seen a much clearer and closer glimpse of eternal life than most of us have. Consider a passage we read a few days ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 through 4. Paul writes, I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. I know that this man, he's very obviously talking about himself. He continues, I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a human being is not allowed to speak. So for Paul, heaven was not some place that he could only imagine because he had seen it portrayed in a movie or a TV show or a cartoon or whatever. Heaven was a place that he had been to. Now, had he been there physically or spiritually? I don't know. Paul didn't know, but he had been there. And his understanding of heaven and eternal life was so concrete and assured in his mind that not only did death not bother him at all... He was actually longing for it in a non-morose, non-morbid, non-depressed, and non dissatisfied with his present life sort of way. And I'll be honest with you, I'm greatly challenged by that and i'm also encouraged by paul's attitude towards death and i really do hope to walk in it one day so to paul in paul's mind it seems so sincere to me to live is christ which is a good thing but to die is gain now isn't that an incredible contrast with how most people view death Paul saw it as winning, a wonderful thing, a gainful thing. And look, unless you think that Paul maybe wrote Philippians 1 when he was in a weird mood or depressed or something like that, he says the same thing in other places, like, for instance, 2 Corinthians five eight, where he says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he says it again, hey, I'd rather be dead and win the presence of God, which is the fullness of life. You know, it's like we're already mostly dead here, but in Christ, in heaven, with him in eternal life, that's the fullness of life. And I think that's where Paul is coming from. So let's close out with some insights from our dear brother Spurgeon on this blessed passage. And he writes, chapter one, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If he lived, if Paul lived, he lived to know more of Christ, studying his person and learning by his happy experience So that he increased in his knowledge of his Lord and Savior. If he lived, he lived to imitate imitate Christ more closely, becoming more and more conformed to his image. If he lived, he lived to make Christ more and more known to others and to enjoy Christ more himself. In these four senses, he might well say, for to me, to live is Christ, to know Christ more, to imitate Christ more, to preach Christ more, and to enjoy Christ more. But he also said, to die is gain. Because death, he felt, would free him from all sin and from all doubts as to his state in the present and the future. It would be gain for him, for then he would no longer be tossed upon the stormy sea, but he would be safe upon the land, whether he, whither he was bound, the land he was going to. It would be gain to him, for then he would be free from all temptations, both from within himself and from without." It would be gained to him, for then he would be delivered from all his enemies, and there would be no cruel Nero, no blaspheming Jews, no false brethren that were after him. It would be gained to him, for then he would be delivered from all suffering. There would be no more shipwrecks, no more being beaten with rods or being stoned, for him then dying too would be gained for him, for he would then be free from all fear of death, and having once died, he would die no more forever." It would be gained for him, for he would find in heaven better and more perfect friends than he would leave behind on earth. And he would find above all his Savior and be a partaker of his glory. This is a big subject, and the more we think over it, the more sweetness shall we get out of it. And man, I... Spurgeon's absolutely right there. The more you think about this passage, the the better it gets, the more sweet it gets. It's, it's kind of mind blowing at first, and you kind of scrunch your eyes and think like, well, what's up, Paul? Where, where are you coming from, buddy? This is, this is a weird thing to say. Are you okay? But the more you ponder it, and the more you kind of perceive the joy that's in Philippians, the more you realize, man, it's not Paul who's crazy, it's me who's crazy. I'm the crazy one because I'm not looking forward enough to eternal life. One of the things Spurgeon says about this passage, he said, Again, I bid you to consider Paul's devotion and self-forgetfulness. It seems to be a matter of no choice with him whether he serves God in life or glorifies him in death. The emblem of the American Baptist Missionary Union is an ox standing between a plow and an altar with the motto, ready for either. Ready to spend and be spent in labor or to be a sacrifice on the altar, whichever the Lord pleases. Now, of course, Spurgeon wrote that, spoke that a long time ago, but I'm envisioning in my mind right now a t-shirt that has an ox standing between a plow and an altar saying ready for either, and I'm thinking how cool that would be. What an awesome logo. So after this podcast is over, I don't know about you, but I'm going to go look and see if there is still an American Baptist missionary union, because they sound pretty cool. Well, let's continue for now, though. In First Kings chapter 10, verse 1, the Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, connected with the name of the Lord, and came to test him with difficult questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage with camels bearing spices, gold in great abundance, and precious stones. She came to Solomon and spoke to him about everything that was on her mind, so Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba observed all of Solomon's wisdom, the palace he had built, the food at his table, his servants' residence, his attendant service in their attire, his cupbearers, and the burnt offerings he offered at the lord's table, it took her breath away. She said to the king, The report I heard in my own country about your words and about your wisdom is true, but I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told the half of it. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men! How happy are these servants of yours, who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king four and a half tons of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did such a quantity of spices arrive as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. In addition, Hiram's fleet that carried gold from Ophir brought from Ophir a large quantity of wood and precious stones. The king made the wood into steps for the Lord's temple and the king's palace and. "...into lyres and harps for the singers. Never before did such Almug wood arrive, and the like has not been seen again. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba her every desire, whatever she asked, but besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she, along with her servants, returned to her own country. The weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was twenty-five tons." Besides what came from merchants, traders, merchandise, and all the Arabian kings and governors of all the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. Fifteen pounds of gold went into each shield. He made 300 small shields of hammered gold. Nearly four pounds of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a large ivory throne and overlaid it with fine gold. The throne had six steps. There was a rounded top at the back of the throne, armrests on either side of the seat, and two lions standing beside the armrests. Twelve lions were standing there on the six steps, one at each end. Nothing like it had ever been made in any other kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking cups were gold, and all of the utensils of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. There was no silver since it was considered as nothing in Solomon's time, for the king had ships of Tarshish at sea with Hiram's fleet, and once every three years the ships of Tarshish would arrive bearing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. King Solomon surpassed all of the kings of the world in riches and in wisdom. The whole world wanted an audience to, with Solomon, To hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart, every man would bring his annual tribute, items of silver and gold, clothing, weapons, spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 1,200 horsemen and stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and he made cedar as abundant as sycamore in the Judean foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and Kew. The king's traders bought them from Kew at the ongoing price. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 15 pounds of silver and a horse for 4 pounds. In the same way, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of Aram through their agents. Well, Psalm chapter 91, verse 1, the one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say concerning the Lord, who is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He himself will rescue you from the bird trap, from the destructive plague. He will cover you with his feathers. He will take, you will take refuge under his wings. His faithfulness will be a protective shield. You will not fear the terror of the night, the arrow that flies by day, the plague that stalks in darkness, or the pestilence that ravages at noon. Though a thousand fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, the pestilence will not reach you. You will only see it with your eyes and witness the punishment of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No harm will come to you. No plague will come near your tent, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the young lion and the serpent because he has his heart set on me. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. I will satisfy him with a long life and show him my salvation. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 40 verse 1. In the twenty-fifth year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after Jerusalem had been captured, on that very day the Lord's hand was on me, and he brought me there. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and sat me down on a very high mountain. On its southern slope was a structure resembling a city. He brought me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. He was standing by the city gate, and he spoke to me, "'Son of man,' Look with your eyes, listen with your ears, and pay attention to everything I am going to show you, for you have been brought here so that I might show it to you. Report everything you see to the house of Israel. Now there was a wall surrounding the outside of the temple. The measuring rod in the man's hand was six units of 21 inches. Each unit was the standard length plus three inches. He measured the thickness of the wall structure. It was ten and a half feet, and its height was the same. Then he came to the gate that faced east and climbed its steps. He measured the threshold of the gate. It was ten and a half feet deep. one threshold was ten and a half feet deep. Each recess recess was ten and a half feet long and ten and a half feet deep and there was a space of eight and three quarters feet between the recesses. The inner threshold of the gate on the temple side next to the gate's portico was ten and a half feet. Next, he measured the gate's portico, it was fourteen feet, and its jams were three and a half feet. The gate's portico was on the temple's side. There were three recesses on each side of the east gate, each with the same measurements, and the jams on either side also had the same measurements. Then he measured the width of the gate's entrance. It was seventeen and a half feet, while the width of the gate was twenty two and three quarters feet. There was a barrier of twenty one inches in front of the recesses on both sides, and the recesses on each side were ten and a half feet square. Then he measured the gate from the roof of one recess to the roof of the opposite one. The distance was 43 and three quarters feet. The opening of the recesses faced each other. Next, he measured the porch 105 feet. The distance from the front of the gate at the entrance to the front of the gate's portico on the inside was 87 and a half feet. The recesses and their jams had beveled windows all around the inside of the gate. The porticos also had windows all around on the inside. Each jam was decorated with palm trees. Pause for a moment. If you are wondering what is the significance of all of these measurements and why three quarters and half feet are being used, it's because the Hebrew here is not in feet and inches. It's been translated from ancient measurements to our best understanding of current measurements. So you might be wondering why in the world something would be, oh, 22 and three quarters feet wide. Uh, or a 21-inch barrier, or the distance was 43 and three-quarters feet. Well, originally it was much more rounded numbers in cubits and spans and things like that. Well, they've just been updated so we can understand it better. Back to the chapter, verse 17. Then he brought me into the outer court, and there were chambers and a paved surface laid out all around the court. Thirty chambers faced the pavement, which flanked the courtyard's gates and corresponded to the length of the gates, this was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the front of the lower gate to the exterior front of the inner court. It was one hundred and seventy five feet. This was the east. Next the north is described. He measured the gate of the outer court facing north, both its length and width, its three recesses on each side, its jams, and its portico had the same measurements as the first gate, eighty seven and a half feet long and forty three and three quarters feet wide. It's windows, portico, and palm trees had the same measurements as those of the gate that faced each. East, seven steps led up the gate and its portico was out of them. The inner gate court had a gate facing the north gate like the one on the east. He measured the distance from gate to gate. It was 175 feet. He brought me to the south side and there was also a gate on the south. He measured its jams and portico. They had the same measurements as the others. Both the gate and its portico had windows all around, like the other windows, it was eighty seven and a half feet long and forty three and three quarters feet wide. Its stairway had seven steps and its portico was ahead of them. It had palm trees on its jams, one on each side. The inner court had a gate on the south. He measured from gate to gate on the south and it was one hundred and seventy five feet. Then he brought me to the inner court through the south gate. When he measured the south gate, it had the same measurements as the others. Its recesses, jams, and portico had the same measurements as the others. Both it and its porticos had windows all around. It was eighty-seven and a half feet long and forty-three and three-quarters feet wide. There were porticos all around, forty-three and three-quarters feet long and eight and three-quarters feet wide. Its portico faced the outer court and its jams were decorated with palm trees. Its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side, where, when he measured the gate, it had the same measurements as the others. Its recesses, jams, and portico had the same measurements as the others. both it and its portico had windows all around it was eighty seven and a half feet long and forty three and three quarters feet wide. Its portico faced the outer court, and its jams were decorated with palm trees on each side. Its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate. When he measured it, it had the same measurements as the others, as did its recesses, jambs, and portico. It also had windows all around. It was eighty-seven and a half feet long and forty-three and three quarters feet wide. Its portico faced the outer court, and its jambs were decorated with palm trees on each side. Its stairway had eight steps. There was a chamber whose door opened into the gate's portico. The burnt offering was to be washed there. Inside the gate's portico, there were two tables on each side, on it which to slaughter the burnt offering, sin offering, and guilt offering. Outside, as one approaches the entrance to the north gate, there were two tables on one side and two more tables on the other side of the gate's portico. So there were four tables inside the gate and four outside, eight tables in all, on which the slaughtering was to be done. There was also four tables of cut stone for the burnt offering, each thirty-one and a half inches long, thirty-one and a half inches wide, and twenty-one inches high. The utensils used to slaughter the burnt offerings and other sacrifices were placed on them. There were three-inch hooks fastened all around the inside of the room, and the flesh of the offering was to be laid on the tables. Outside the inner gate, within the inner court, there were chambers for the singers, one beside the north gate facing south, and one beside the south gate facing north. Then the man said to me, "'This chamber that faces south is for the priests who keep charge of the temple. The chamber that faces north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, the ones from the sons of Levi, who may approach the Lord to serve him.' Next he measured the court. It was square, 175 feet long and 175 feet wide." The altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the portico of the temple and measured the jams of the portico. They were eight and three quarters feet thick on each side. The width of the gate was twenty-four and a half feet, and the side walls of the gate were five and a quarter feet wide on each side. The portico was 35 feet across and 21 feet deep, and tid steps led up to it. There were pillars by the jams, one on each side. Well, amen, friends. May the Lord bless you. May his great grace cover you. and May his face shine upon you. Good day to you, and Godspeed.